I'm going to um, talk tonight about George IV. 2020 marks the 200th anniversary of George IV's succession to the British throne. And this anniversary, opportunely perhaps um, for me uh, tonight, um, in the light of recent events in the institution of the monarchy, also gives us, I think, the opportunity to think about the role of an individual as a private and public person in this most gilded of cages. I'm going to ask some old-fashioned questions about George IV, the sort of questions that most historians now only ask of selected historical figures, male figures for the most part, monarchs, politicians, generals, and so on. That is to say, was George IV a success as a public figure? Was he a good Prince of Wales, a good regent, a good king? What did he, did he do what the institution of the monarchy demanded of him? I'm also going to talk about his influence. Did he leave anything that was distinguished, useful, or beautiful? And I'm going to talk about him as a person as much as is possible, because George was, after a fashion, a private man, trying, within the constraints of the institution he was born to inherit and lead, to have some kind of private life. Finally, I'll ask if on the 200th anniversary of George IV's succession, we should reassess the reputation that he has and modify it in any way. George IV's reputation was poor when he ascended the throne in 1820, and poor still when he died a decade later in 1830. The day after his funeral, the Times newspaper ran a leader declaring with undeferential relish, there never was an individual less regretted by his fellow creatures than this deceased king. What eye has wept for him, it went on, what heart has heaved one throb of unmercenary sorrow? If George IV ever had a friend, a devoted friend, in any rank of life, we protest that the name of him or her has not yet reached us. George was held in low esteem, both by his chief executor, the Duke of Wellington, and by his niece, Queen Victoria. The Duke destroyed many of George IV's personal possessions and presumably as much of his private correspondence, both incoming and outgoing, that he could get hold of. Queen Victoria, who loved uh, to hear scurrilous and, and uh, stories about her uncle, hung on to the best of his paintings, porcelain, silver and furniture, but sold off or junked what she didn't like. In the absence of George's private correspondence, his vast and expensive wardrobe, I think if there's one thing that would be marvellous to have, it would be his wardrobe, and his collections other than his best art and furniture, his intimate world and emotions are difficult to reconstruct, except from the outside. But this negative assessment did not have to wait for George IV's death. It was arrived at early on as the image that I've put up here shows. This print was made by James Gilray in 1792, when George, then Prince of Wales, was just 30 years old, and entitled, A Voluptuary Under the Horrors of Digestion. 
Gilray's engraving shows the Prince of Wales at the height of his most debauched period, splayed out over a chair, picking his teeth with a fork. George stares unapologetically at us, surrounded by empty wine bottles, a cascade of unpaid bills, an overflowing chamber pot. Gilray's engraving does not even show the prince as convivially drunk or fornicating, as many other prints did, but alone, without companions. Perhaps one reason why it has endured so long is that it contains something we don't see when we first look, the essential loneliness of the man and the role he had to fulfil. George was a famously sociable man who loved to surround himself with people. This conviviality, often stressed by contemporaries, masked a loneliness that was both individual and institutional. Who could know the Prince of Wales? And as importantly, who could the Prince of Wales really know? Gilray's image was famous in its own day and was republished many times in the years and decades after 1792. It came to encapsulate the popular vision of George IV as a wastrel, a spendthrift and a drunkard, all of which things he was. It also highlights several important things that it is useful to bear in mind when we consider his life. The first, topically, is that it was about the private and seemingly not the public life of the Prince of Wales. And yet this highlights the fact that by, from the mid-18th century onwards, the distinction between the private life and the public life of a member of the royal family had been eroded by the ubiquity and license of the press. The 18th century press was active, scurrilous, and recording everything in both words and images. There were dozens of daily newspapers published in Britain by the 1760s and all the way up through into the 1790s, and all of them needed copy. The laws of libel were weak. All kinds of things could be printed that would be forbidden today. And you could print things about famous person personages as long as you put the last letter, uh, the first letter of their name, and then the last letter of their name, and, bl and blanks in between, which of course the public could exceptionally easily fill in. You could print private letters, and indeed um, private letters of the royal family were printed in the newspapers, satires, rumours, accounts of debaucheries and love affairs. Until the 1790s, when draconian new laws against what was called seditious libel were passed, Britain's press was really very free. Prints were also issued in their thousands, satirical as well as comic. Everything, uh, every political event, every major cultural event, um, and um, everything that the royal family did uh, was usually recorded not only in the print, uh, in, the, in the newspapers, but also in caricature. Uh, and this uh, is uh, another print uh, of the Prince of Wales. That's him on the left-hand side. Now, the content of the image is less important than uh, really what it, in, what it shows that the press was enabled to portray. In fact, this, has to do, uh, this print has to do with the Regency crisis of 1778-9, to 
uh, when George III falls ill and the prince and his associates are seen to be um, attempting to grab power all too quickly. Um, and, it, and actually, I suppose what it, what it seems to be saying is that the prince uh, and his associates are looking at the glorious world that they wanted to be able to have, and it's all really turned to shit. Um, and uh, so there are lots of these very scatological prints um, of the royal family as well. And these prints and the and accounts that were published in the newspapers, obviously just as today, and perhaps even more so because members of the royal family could not speak in their position as private people to the press. Um, the press could find their letters and publish them, but there was no way that they could give an account of themselves. So perhaps even more than today, the way in which they were portrayed in the media came to determine how they were seen um, by the public. As we will see, George IV put a tremendous amount of energy into his own public image in portraits, interiors, pageants and buildings. But it is Gilray's image which hints that a careless prince will be an equally careless king that has endured. What led to the point at which George could plausibly be described as a voluptuary enthralled to sensation? After all, it started very well. George was born on the 12th of August, 1762, just 11 months after the marriage of his parents, George III and Princess Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. Here is the young king, George III, splendid in his coronation robes, painted by Alan Ramsay. And this is the official portrait that's distributed to many a country house and places all round uh, the empire. The production of an heir was the basic familial duty of the monarch, and George III fulfilled that duty as quickly as humanly possible. And any anxiety about the perpetuation of the dynasty was completely erased by the stream of children who came after George, 15 in all. In addition to that, George III was young and healthy, likely to live long. He was extremely moderate in his habits, a way of life that gradually turned into a high-minded austerity that made his court exceptionally dull and his heir infuriated. And he was inclined to let his children live simply and out of the public eye. So it couldn't really have been a better start. His parents weren't anxious and he was loved as a baby. He was a bonny and intelligent child with fine blue-grey eyes and a mass of light hair, light brown hair. George III was an indulgent father to his babies and loved to get down on the carpet and play with them, both at Windsor or at Kew. But far too soon, George was removed from the family and with his younger brother Frederick was set up in Kew Palace under the eye of a harsh governor, Lord Holderness, and several tutors. From the age of seven, he was being prepared for his future role as king, so that he was aware from a very young age that he was different from his brothers and sisters. He was the heir to the throne and subject way beyond his childhood, not just to the conditions of the 1701 Act of Settlement that laid down the relationship between the crown and the executive, but also to his father's whims and strictures. The Act of Settlement precluded him from marrying a Catholic, 
while the Royal Marriages Act of 1772 forbade him from marrying anyone without his father's permission before the age of 25. Everywhere he turned, there was his father stopping something. Hanoverian kings and their heirs already had a very bad history. George I hated his son and banished him from St. James's Palace. George II, in turn, ridiculed and hated his son, Prince Frederick, and similarly threw him out, reportedly with only 24 hours' notice. Frederick died young, so that the chain might have been broken here, but his son, George III, seemed to have learnt nothing from the family history. He cut his son off from family affection, made his love for him dependent on good behaviour, and was constantly on the lookout for lapses from his very high standards. Not surprisingly, it all went very wrong. By the time George was a teenager, the combination of the unremittingly severe regime that he was subject to, the subservience of courtiers and visitors, and the emotional neglect to which he was subject, had produced a rebellious young man who was well-educated, charming and talented, but also self-regarding and disinclined to the efforts required of his position as a future king. When he was 16 years old, George dashed off a paean of self-praise for one of his sister's attendants, describing himself in the third person and over two long paragraphs. His sentiments and thoughts are open and generous, he wrote, adding that though he is rather too fond of women and wine, his quick temper was forgivable because he was above doing anything that was mean. Some of these statements were true and others were absolutely untrue. This vision of himself as a dashing and charming young man is evident in the equestrian portrait painted by George Stubbs in 1791, a portrait uh, painting that the prince was particularly fond of, um, and we can see why. He looks slender and he's forging ahead on, on his hunter with his dogs as companions. In this portrait, he's wearing um, the famous blue and buff of the Whig opposition, colours um, and the uniform which were taken up by Washington's army in the United, in the United um, States during the Amer American Revolutionary War. It's actually just at, more or less at the end of the time when he wears the blue and the buff continuously. Um, Gilray shows him wearing the blue and the buff, but probably it, around about a year or two later, he would have stopped uh, wearing it. It was absolutely a sign of his allegiance to the Whig opposition. Others agreed that the prince was convivial and warm and could be charming when he wanted to be. Had he not been who he was, his acquaintance Lady Holland wrote, he would, I am persuaded, have been a most amiable man. He was often kind loved children and hated any kind of cruelty to animals. He was happy to sit around the piano and sing, loved bawdy songs and popular opera arias, counting it a tremendous honour that Gioacchino Rossini came to play the piano for him while he sang songs from the master's works. And uh, Rossini was obviously a skilled um, 
courtier, after they'd sung arias from his operas, he struck up the national anthem on the piano. Joseph Haydn wrote that George had an extraordinary love of music and a lot of feeling for it. George returned the compliment by commissioning Haydn's portrait from Joseph Hopner when the composer came to London in 1791. Many people commented on what a good likeness of Haydn this was. The portrait is uh, unfinished, but also somewhat typically, I think, um, having commissioned the portrait, and we hope having paid for it, uh, George actually never took delivery of it um, during the painter's life, and it did not enter his um, collection until his widow turned it over um, when Hopner died in 1810. The positive view that the prince had of himself and many visitors' echoes was, of course, not shared by the king. George III only too quickly came to the opposite view, voicing a disapproval and disdain that the prince fully returned by the time he was in his late teens. The king hates me, George told his friend George James <coughs> Harris, adding, he always did from seven years old. I think it's rather a poignant statement because, of course, seven years old is, is the time that he was removed from all his siblings and set up on his own. So he must have seen that it, uh, inside himself as a kind of, as a kind of banishment um, and as an indication of how much his parents disliked him, um, whereas it, probably George III thought he was doing the right thing by um, submitting his son to a very, very severe educational uh, regime. The duties of the Prince of Wales were undefined, but in practice determined by the king. From the age of 21, George received a handsome allowance of £50,000 a year, which was supplemented by £12,000 a year from the royal family's own private income. It's really hard to say what that, that £62,000 is in um, today's money, but... Um, even if we, if we times it by 100, um, that would be £6.2 million a year. Um, but the, obviously the buying power um, is, is wildly different. Anyway, it's a, it's a very adequate and um, large income, and there are very few people, even aristocrats, or possibly none, who have an income that large um, in the 18th century. So you get £62,000 a year, a household and an establishment of his own in Carlton House on the southern side of Pall Mall. He was forbidden from leaving the country without permission or taking a military role, both of which he longed to do. Um, one of the things that's another poignant thing and rather sad is, it, is that um, George IV liked to design military uniforms. They became more and more extravagant over time, and he liked to wear them at ceremonial occasions, but of course he could never take any active um, military role at all. And from the age of uh, 21, he was now in a very public way his father's heir. George III expected him to act with the decorum and ceremony his position demanded, especially in the matter of politics, where he was expected, if not to support his father, then to stay out of the limelight. Matters were supposed to continue in this way until the king died. But in 1783, when the prince moved into Carlton House, his father was only 45 years old. Decades might pass before he inherited the throne. So the burning question of the prince's life was what to do in the meantime. The same question that has haunted members of the royal family who are not the monarch since the turn of the 18th century 
when a constitutional monarchy was established in Britain. As if to spite his father, as soon as he turned 18, and even more so when he moved into Carlton House, the prince began to pursue with great energy and pleasure the life of women, song and wine that his father most feared. The press, of course, loved this, and images of the prince began to fill the print shops of London. Here is George with his companions and a couple of courtesans, drawn by Thomas Rowlandson sometime in the 80, 1780s. Of course, Rowlandson is a beautiful draftsman, so these prints um, have, a, have a, a genuine um, elegance to them. The Whig politician, Charles James Fox, is on the left, dressed as an abbess of Covent Garden. That is to say, the procuress, or the person who has led the prince to these debaucheries. Um, so again, the political and the personal are all inter interwoven in this print. Actually, much as George III hated the way these prints drew attention to his son and his gallivanting, George himself rather liked this sort of image, which was at this stage not without affection, and he collected um, many of the kinder prints about himself. Out on the town, at prize fights, at, New at Newmarket, with a string of mistresses who had to be bought off when he got bored, George chose activities that enraged his father, not just because they were a deliberate affront to his way of life, but because they involved spending huge sums of money. George III was always careful to live within his civil list allowance and his private income, and bought the art, books, clothes, and other objects that he thought befitting to a monarch, but nothing more. And in fact, as time went on, um, George III and, um, and his queen are portrayed more and more as simple souls living out in the country. He becomes Farmer George, um, and they're portrayed famously by Gilray, Gilray as having dinner off a boiled egg, one, one each looking across at one another. The prince himself, therefore, began to overspend extravagantly and not just on entertainment um, and women and horses. He embarked on full-scale renovations to Carlton House, on furniture and art, and on a spectacular wardrobe. Carlton House was a rambling and neglected pile when the prince moved in, and was still an architectural and stylistic hodgepodge when it was demolished in 1826. Nothing remains of it except some of the furniture and objects, a vast collection of stuff <coughs> occupied uh, men, uh, the upper um, storey, the, uh, called the armoury, and the paintings that George bought while, while he lived there. So the vast sums that were spent on it were wasted. Carlton House's melange of Chinois Gothic Louis XV swag anticipated some of the schemes that were later carried out in the Brighton Pavilion. But the effect, if surviving prints are anything to go by, was less eccentric and more deadening. Um, here on the uh, um, left-hand side is what was called the Velvet Room, and here is the lobby and the staircase. I think this is um, a print of 1819. Um, the Velvet Room, you can see, if you can peer your way through all the kind of uh, heavy um, swag, the gilding, the vast chandelier, at the back you can see a painting I'm going to show you later, um, which is the Rembrandt's shipbuilder and his wife. It shows how it was hung amongst all this splendour. From the surviving evidence then, Carlton House interiors seem to have been all gilt and chintz with heavy curtains, 
vast chandeliers. To our present taste, it's grandeur without elegance and luxury without beauty. It certainly was, however, and this was part of the point of it, of course, much grander than anywhere, anywhere King George III inhabited, much more of a palace than Kew, much grander than Kensington Palace, and far more regal than the medieval shambles of St James's. Carlton House was an alternative court, but one where George shrugged off the atmosphere of the real court with its disciplined use of the day and tepid evening entertainments. When he was to be found at home, it was often in his bedchamber, where he transacted both friendship and love and such business as he could bring himself to do. The memoirist Nathaniel Raxall reported with glee that visitors often found the prince in bed, rolling about from side to side in a state approaching nudity, no matter what the hour. Early in 1784, when he was still 21, the prince met a mild-mannered and attractive Roman Catholic widow, 27-year-old Maria Fitzherbert. Here she is, painted uh, by Reynolds, rather lovely picture, a, pi a picture commissioned by the prince himself, and subsequently, and again, I think this is sort of typical, given away when the relationship faltered. As Lord Holland observed, George had a successful technique with women. Lord Holland says, he generally assailed the hearts he wished to carry by exciting their commiserations for his sufferings and their apprehensions for his health. With Maria Fitzherbert, who is extremely devout, this didn't work for a long time, despite the prince's letter-writing, present-giving and constant visiting. She declared her intention to leave for France and get away from him. George fell ill and then stabbed himself in the chest, which finally brought Mrs. Her Fitzherbert round to his bedroom in Carlton House. There's another version of this story, which, 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 that he was absolutely overwrought, and his doctors advised that he, he be blooded, so blood be taken from him. And, uh, and then when he heard that he's having sent her a message, he rips off the bandage so that when she arrives in the room, the blood is pouring out, and she's so overcome she promises to marry him whereupon he was miraculously able to sit up in bed and slip a ring on her finger. Still, she left, telling him that her consent had been obtained under duress. Gigantic letters followed her to France. So one of them is 40 pages long. And in the end, she returned, and the wedding went ahead, legal in the eyes of the Catholic Church, doubly illegal under the terms of the Royal Marriages Act, First, because she's a Roman Catholic. Second, because he's under the age of 25. And, he has, and, and of course, he hasn't got the mission of his father. George repeatedly denied, even to close friends, that the marriage had taken place. But the press had a field day with it nonetheless. Especially since Mrs., once Mrs Fitzherbert was installed in a mansion round the corner from Carlton House, which, of course, took enormous amount of money to... Um, renovate and uh, furnish and maintain in the glittering style to which um, she soon became accustomed. So here's a typically bawdy take on the marriage, uncovering the identities of the protagonists. The prince and Mrs Fitzherbert in the middle. The prince's friend Lord Broom, you can see him with his broom um, on the right-hand side. And the politicians Charles James Fox in the middle, there's Edmund Burke, rather brilliantly portrayed as a, as a bishop on the right-hand side. 
I'm not sure if, who is on the left-hand side. Probably um, that's James Harris, the, the prince's equerian friend. And who the person with rabbit ears is, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but um, the intention, of course, is to, to uh, involve as many of the prince's um, political associates as possible in the, um, the affair. Actually, none of these people were present at the time. And the prince swore to Fox that... Um, he, he was not married, something that Fox repeated in the House of Commons later. By the early 1790s, the prince's affairs had reached a point of crisis. George III and had his first prolonged bout of insanity in 1788, and the prince and his Whig associates had been all too eager to take the reins of power and to declare a regency. The king's unexpected recovery early in 1789 plunged the prince's relationship with both his father and the hungry press onto the rocks. The progress of the French Revolution and the execution of Louis XVI, which seemed to threaten monarchies all over Europe, ended the prince's association with, with his erstwhile Whig friends. As war spread throughout Europe, he distanced himself from his friends amongst the Foxites and became suspicious of anything even associated with radical politics, including Catholic emancipation. He also came to see himself as the custodian of the monarchical principle and tradition in Europe, buying up royal memorabilia, especially that of the French absolutist monarchy, like this bronze copy of a statue of Louis XIV. Uh, the statue uh, stood in the Place de Vendôme and was torn down and destroyed in 1793. And this, so this is a, um, a, a, a copy. Um, these photographs are taken in the exhibition in the Queen's Gallery, which is running at, at the moment. So all the photographs um, of the Prince's paintings are taken from that exhibition. Unfortunately, this political change of heart did nothing to endear the Prince to the press, the public or his father. In fact, George III took advantage of his own new popularity <laughs> after his recovery to demand ever more firmly that his son reform his whole way of life. The prince's debts had by this time become unsustainable. The only way to get them paid off was to do as his father wished, at least in the short term, get married properly and produce an heir. The prince decided to comply. In 1794, having already taken a new mistress, he dismissed Mrs Fitzherbert, and the following year, after a cursory search, and despite the well-telegraphed warnings of his friend James Harris, who'd been to Germany to check her out, he married his cousin, Princess Caroline of Brunswick. And here she is, looking uncharacteristically scholarly. Um, I don't think she's often recorded uh, reading a book. The marriage was an absolute disaster, undertaken principally as a debt reduction scheme and with scant regard for any of the people involved, including the prince himself. From the very first, the prince hated Caroline, Famously, when he first saw her, he turned to James Harris and said, Harris, a brandy. When Harris protested that a glass of water might be better, George abruptly left the room. He claimed only to have slept with Caroline three times and spread rumours that she wasn't a virgin, using the self-serving proof that when he climbed into bed with her the first morning after their wedding, it was, uh, apparently, he was so drunk on the night of the wedding that he fell into the fireplace. Um, so he climbed into bed with her on the morning of their wedding. 
having been far too drunk the night before, he claimed that she said, ah, mon Dieu, qu'il est gros. How, the prince asked, would he have been able to describe his manliness if his was the first she'd ever seen? For her part, Caroline soon hated George back and rebelled against the life he demanded she lead, kept away from him and made to be quiet. Although an heir, Princess Charlotte was born nine months after the wedding, George's marriage only made everything worse for him and added to his father another person to hate and feel persecuted by. The public sided with the princess, the prince's debts mounted again and the king continued to be implacable. This state of affairs continued both up to and beyond the Regency, which began in 1811, when George III was finally declared irremediably mad and unable to rule. Even when Princess Charlotte died in childbirth in 1817, the regent earned scant sympathy. So when George finally came to the throne in 1820, it was too late to do much about his reputation despite royal visits to Ireland, Hanover and Scotland and the usual state pomp. Here is uh, his coronation portrait, a late and suspiciously youthful riposte to the portrait of his father, painted by Ramsay 50 years earlier. The fact was that by the time of his accession, George was an ailing man without a direct heir or family. Estranged from his wife, who died soon after a massively lavish coronation, to which she was very publicly denied entrance. He was obese and dependent on alcohol and laudanum. Usually um, he was wearing a wig and copious amounts of makeup when he appeared in public. And as the years went on, he was more a hindrance to the governance of the nation than a symbol of its greatness. So though George IV was undoubtedly the architect of his own reputation, his life was also shaped by circumstances, by an unyielding father, and by the fact that for three decades, as Prince of Wales, he had no real role to play. Through all this, though, as Prince and then King, George remained a man capable of kindness, generosity, and artistic discernment. <clears throat> In his youth, he was a leader of fashion and style, and always insisted on the highest standards of tailoring and finish in every project he undertook. He was a generous patron to various institutions, and gave his father's extensive library in its entirety to the British Museum in 1823, a gift that resulted in the demolition of the existing museum and the building of a new grand neoclassical sculpture structure. After music, art and architecture best engaged the prince's talents, George IV was the last monarch who bought any decent painting for the crown although it has to be said he bought a lot of not very good stuff as well. In particular, he added many outstanding works to the Crown's already fine collection of 17th century work from the Low Countries. In 1811, four months after he became regent, George bought The Shipbuilder and His Wife, painted by Rembrandt um, in the height of his powers. He paid for it uh, £5,000, which was an astronomical sum at the time, and it was the most expensive purchase that he made in his life. Hard not to see it as a flourish of his newly replenished checkbook. It really is an outstanding painting. You'll have to go and see it um, to appreciate it, because I haven't managed to do just it with this, with this photograph. 
1819, he added this Rembrandt portrait of Agatha Bass, one half of a double marriage portrait painted in 1641, which is notable for the way that Rembrandt paints the sitter uh, holding the frame with her left hand, which makes it seem as if she's leaning towards us. This painting joined the 86 Dutch and Flemish paintings that the prince bought from Sir Thomas Baring in 1814, many of which were of the highest quality, including a Rembrandt self-portrait and many small genre pieces, such as this exquisite small painting by Jan Steen from 1663. The prince was very fond of small um, genre paintings like this and added to his Dutch collection with several British contemporary versions of very dubious quality. Paintings by David Wilkie and Edward Bird of villagers in taverns and so on. Although he also did buy, early, very early on in 1797, one extraordinary work, an unfinished Gainsborough painting, a Titian influence, Cezanne anticipating scene of Diana and Acteon. It's not clear that this painting was ever um, displayed in public. It's um, catalogued as in store in Carlton House. But when you see it now on the wall, it really is a remarkable picture. The Prince also acquired several outstanding landscapes with the Bering Collection, including these two by Kuyp, which are beautiful and poignant for the fact that they brought into Carlton House places that George himself, forbidden from travelling abroad by his father, had never been to, and in the end would never see. Though had he been able to go to the continent, he would have found its drawing rooms and spa culture and musical culture just the sort of conviviality he most enjoyed. The beautiful paintings, and here's um, uh, another one of them. At Carlton House, where his collections were displayed until he became king, George tried to mix his private inclination for glamorously eccentric interiors with his opposing desire for the royal and the pompous, which produced a mashup of interiors with no controlling taste or aesthetic coherence. He also loved a bit of glitter and all kinds of stuff from military uniforms and equipment to clothing from around the world, and much of which is lost. Although his successors did, of course, keep the jewels, dress swords, crowns, gold plate, and gongs like these. Gradually, however, he split his two needs with Buckingham Palace and Windsor Castle absorbing the, de the desire for grandeur and monarchical heft and the Royal Pavilion in Brighton showcasing the brilliant and eccentric. As a result, precisely because George was not trying to make the pavilion a palace, it is his only building that shows a genuinely personal stamp and flair. <coughs> Perhaps the only royal building that shows genuinely personal stamp and flair. George first took the lease of the house that turned into the pavilion in 1786, but it was in, only in 1815 that the plain house began its transformation under the architect John Nash. This is the exterior when it was finished in 1822. The pavilion was a building that stupefied and horrified visitors in equal measure when they first went down to it. One described the exterior as taken from the Kremlin in Moscow. The interior seemed to others an enchanted palace of light with colours shifting through stained glass 
and light glancing and twinkling from lanterns, mirrors, chandeliers and lacquered walls. Glittering objects filled the rooms, gilt conch shells, silver dragons and snakes and gilded furniture. Everything was saturated with colour, deep reds, yellows, blues. This was the prince's own style, the real Regency style, in marked contrast to the rather dull elegance of the Beau Brummel style that has taken on that title and come to be associated with him. So this is the ballroom of the pavilion, um, and I've chosen this print because it actually what it shows is the Beau Brummel style, um, which is uh, worn by the guests to the ball, and the prince's own Regency style, with the marvellous chandeliers, you know, the ranks of pagodas up and down the walls, and the he really heavy swag curtains. And other rooms are even more extravagant in the pavilion. One of the things about um, George's interiors, I think, that when we think about Georgian style, we, we think very strongly of light coming into interiors, of big windows, and a sense of clearly defined space and light filling space. What the regent did, what George loved, was to cut out the outside world and make these interiors like his own private pleasure domes where the exterior world was actually um, excluded. Uh, I think if there's one thing I'd like you to take away from this evening, it's a reimagining, therefore, of Regency style. It's not Mr. Darcy or the cute muslin dresses the ladies are wearing here. It's the absolutely mad over the topness of the Regent's taste itself. George IV died on 26th of June 1830, having drifted towards death at Windsor Castle for several months. Although the immediate cause was the rupture of a blood vessel in his stomach, the long-term cause was the decades of abuse of his immensely strong body. Um, he was taking uh, in tremendous amounts of laudanum and alcohol um, all the way up um, to his death. George had left instructions in his will of 1796 that he be buried with his miniature of Mrs Fitzherbert round his neck and he repeated these instructions to the Duke of Wellington in his last illness. This wish, the Duke of Wellington recorded, uh, having had a good look at the body in the coffin, was complied with, so that this little picture, one of the few really personal items that remains from his vast collections of stuff, is presumably where it was put to rest in the vault of St George's Chapel, Windsor. The fact was, and still is, that a constitutional monarchy renders the monarch impotent. That is the point of it. After the glorious revolution of 1689 and the Act of Settlement of 1701, the executive took control of the British state and gradually increased that control during the 18th century. As constitutional monarchy became entrenched, and after the French Revolution, monarchs uh, all around Europe had a very fearful example of what could go wrong, the monarch and his family had less and less to do. For better or worse, the most that can be said about George IV's public monarchical achievements is that until the end of his reign, he was too averse to bureaucratic work to interfere much in the business of government, and so contributed to the solidity of the constitutional monarchy. 
As a rebellious youth, George had sided with the Whig opposition that demanded reforms to government and the franchise. But the French Revolution ended uh, his dalliance with political change, and the long Napoleonic Wars and unrest and rebellion in Ireland turned it to a firm hostility. So both as regent and king, George stuck with successive Tory administrations. His 10-year reign began just after the quelling of the social unrest that culminated in the Peterloo Massacre and drew to a close with the Prime Minister, the Duke of Wellington, forcing him to accept and sign the Catholic Relief Act of 1829, which finally allowed Catholics to hold public office and to sit in Parliament. George had resisted the subject of Catholic emancipation for years, and when he finally did sign the bill, he complained testily that the Duke of Wellington, who he admired and was scared of in equal measure, was king now, King Arthur, he said, while he, the real king, was just a lowly official. He described himself a canon of Windsor. The press, of course, understood the significance of this capitulation, as this brilliant cartoon showed. Riffing on the discovery of the planet Uranus by George Herschel in 1781, which was originally called Georgium Sidus, the George Star, George IV is here shown eclipsed by the Duke of Wellington, his realm thrown into shadow, while Ireland, which is obviously where Wellington comes from, off to the right, has a bright future. So this was how the reign of George IV ended, with the infirm and ailing king sidelined and his lean and relentless prime minister triumphant. But that, in a constitutional monarchy, was how it should be. George was indeed a terrible Prince of Wales in the eyes of the institution of the monarchy represented by his father, and also in the eyes of the public, not so much because of his womanising and political opposition, but above all because he ran up huge debts, many of which they knew, rightly, would eventually fall on the public purse. But as king, in terms of the institution of the monarchy, he didn't do so badly, because one of the jobs of the monarch at the time, when monarchies all over Europe were tottering, and in some cases falling, was to keep the institution alive and strong, even if he did it largely through neglect and incapacity. He continued his father's Tory administration when he became regent and did, in the end, fulfil his constitutional role and sign the Catholic Relief Act into law. The Duke of Wellington was a thorough Tory who understood that for things to say it's the same, for the monarchical and imperial power structure that held Britain in place and gave, its place in the, gave it its place in the world to remain, the Duke of Wellington understood things had to change. This policy worked. The Catholic Relief Act ushered in the Great Reform Bill of 1832 and the gradual, very gradual, reform of the franchise, which was finally equalised almost a century later, when in 1928, women were finally given the franchise on the same terms as men. In that time, aristocratic Tory power was cemented. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. When George IV died in 1830, Britain had a Tory administration, government by House of Commons and House of Lords, and a Prime Minister who was educated at Eton College. In 2020, on the 200th anniversary of George's accession, 
Britain has a Tory administration, government by House of Lords and House of Commons, and a Prime Minister who was educated at Eton College. We have gone from here to here. <laughs> that's um, Nicola Jennings. So that's where I'm going to leave you um, to judge whether it's all been for the best. Thank you very much for coming.